in the mental health field too often. We've made it seem as if it's just in your head. Just in your head. The landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. We can have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. Hello, and welcome to It's Not Just In Your Head. I'm Dr. Harriet Fraud, and... I'm Max Golding, licensed therapist in California. And I am so glad to be with you. We have listened to our listeners and decided today we would talk a little bit about presenting cases within the liberation health model so people get a more concrete idea of where we're coming from when we say it's not just in your head. I want to thank all our listeners for listening and for telling others to listen. And I particularly want to thank our Patreon members that make this program possible. Yeah, thank you. And uh, we <clears throat> I'm about to name some particular patron names because over a certain kind of pay tier, you are you're sort of paying to have your name listed. So that's why, if anyone's ever wondered. But so thank you in particular to First Winter, Sarah Turner, Rebecca Johns, Justin Harper, Bandila Msimanga, Evan Lee, and Ashley. <clears throat> uh, but these patrons are not uh, of like higher importance uh, than other patrons. We appreciate the contributions from all patrons and also anyone that uh, that can't shell out the three dollars a month that's the lowest tier and you just enjoy the podcast we appreciate you we appreciate your feedback and emails or any other way that you like to give us feedback uh, whether it's constructive criticism um, episode ideas or anything else and your your feedback uh, is why we're having this episode today actually so um, so we really do like to listen to what you have to say and Max said, constructive criticism, destructive criticism isn't helpful, so hold on to that yourself. <laughs> and we also want you to share this program. You don't have to give us money, though we love it when you do, but please share it to enhance our listener base and yeah. also spread the word. Yeah, and give it to your therapist. I mean, maybe not. Maybe that's awkward. Because <laughs> yeah. we also wanted to, we thought, Harriet and I, when we first started this, was um, we, we one sort of goal we had was we wanted to have the mental health field be listening to these conversations so we can kind of, I don't know if, if we have a grandiose goal like reforming the mental health profession, but that would be well, nice. Enlightening them anyway. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. And not like we know better, but just I think we all, most of our listeners understand that we feel that the, the field is... Um, it's it's uh, a political stance is problematic. So yes, we don't like that, it. Right, we don't, and that's why we adhere to the liberation health method. We talked to the yeah. people who wrote the collection on liberation health. Yeah, Don, Don Martinez. Hernandez. Don oh, Martinez. Oh, Martinez. Hernandez. Martinez. Martinez. Yeah. Oh, my bad. Who was one of the several, and we were really. Pleased to have them on. And I would like to start by presenting okay. a client who was particularly moved by seeing the cultural and economic roots of her problem. Can we actually, can we quickly just do a, a sort of a, just to mention on the confidentiality piece, my, my, my partner mentioned this to me this morning of saying, wait, are you going to talk about actual clients you have? So these, these may or may not be clients that we have had in the past with some identifying information uh, changed. Uh, just so, basically, if, if the person were to find the podcast and listen, they wouldn't even know it was them. 
And right. so, and you're, you're not going to be able to track them down or something like that. So we're not talking about anything that would violate confidentiality that technically would be illegal for us to do as we are a licensed therapist. And uh, so anyway, just getting that out of the way, if anyone thinks, if you feel uncomfortable, why are you talking about your clients? We're technically not talking about our clients. And if we are, we're doing it in a way that could not cause harm. Okay, we are there also we go. We're changing some details that would be distinguishing details. Right. I would like to begin by talking about a client who came to my office terribly upset. Her husband, in a fit of rage, had tried to crash the car with her in it and was quite destructive. And when I asked her, she was a black woman, and um, I asked her about her husband. She said she was married at the age of 13 in the South, and that he was always a tyrant and demanded of her that she do all the domestic labor and all be, she didn't use that term, and also put out whenever he felt like it and take care of his kids from a former marriage because he was 10 years older. And she felt she had to do this. And his control mechanisms became more and more desperate as she began to chafe under his authority. And I said, well, let's put your work into a context. In a class analysis, you were a feudal serf. You created use values for your master. You created cleanliness, you created order, you performed sexual use value services, you performed childcare, you performed emotional services, and your rights were limited, like a feudal serf that keeps just enough to survive of her, his, or their land, products, their farm products, and the rest given over to the lord of the manor. That's what you did with your husband. And she burst into tears because she had, it was a heavily emotional message for her. She had never seen that she was basically a serf in the household and that had been given into this household before she knew what was happening. And that her feelings of helplessness and imprisonment were substantiated by her objective situation, her economic, political, and social situation. And I think I'm presenting that because I'm talking about a Marxian economic analysis, but the impact on this woman's life of understanding that it wasn't as her husband said, that she's just simple-minded, but rather that her objective situation was that of a feudal serf in a modern period. And of course she wanted to escape. And his machinations of control became more and more desperate because he isn't a feudal lord. 
and he doesn't have the right to imprison her. And she does have options. And when she finished crying, we really explored her feelings of helplessness, which were not actually merited by her situation. We were talking in about 19, you know, in the late 1990s when feudalism was abolished outside the household and was not encouraged inside the household either. And that she always had rights as a person. And she was overwhelmed. So when we talk about the liberation health model in which the person in question is inside of a triangle, and one of the bars of the triangle is personal, what happened in your personal life. One of them is your economic position, whether you are of the dominant class in America, the powerful class, the minority, which are employers who profit from the labor of other people, or employees who work to make other people's profit or work to support a system that allows profit. And the other is cultural. Whether you're black or white or Native American or Hispanic or anything else, whether you identify as cisgender or anything like GLBTQ+, if you are transgender, all of those things impact you in the center of that triangle. And all she could see was the personal. I am a wife. I am a mother. But she couldn't see, why am I feeling imprisoned? And to hear about the prison she was in and given away to since she was 13 years old was at the same time a realization of her oppression an enormous relief that that oppression was undeserved. And so I think part of the reason for the liberation therapy triangle is really that it's more of a model of swirling lines forming one another and forming the individual in the center because her race also influenced her being married in the South at a, you know, below legal age and her not learning the kind of skills people learn in a good school system or learning her rights as a human being and being in the South, which is particularly racially oppressive and being of the female gender, trained in subservience in many cases, so that those cultural things played a huge emotional role and helped to shape who she was, and also, as they changed, helped her to realize she didn't have to endure this, and at the same time, her economic position from a family of sharecroppers who didn't have money, meant that unloading her on somebody who would support her was a relief.
and that she was presumed to be a workhorse in any case, and all the personal baggage that went with it, being an unfavored child, being taught she was a nobody, and those feelings, those personal feelings, were mutually shaped by everything around her, her economic position, her political position, her cultural standing. And so although the lines of the triangle are three lines in order to show a person in the middle, what we're really talking about is a swirling scent, a swirling force of interacting and mutually shaping forces that put her in the awful position she was in. And learning about it was at once a huge relief and also brought on the powerful pain that she had felt she couldn't even begin to express because she didn't understand what was going on. And seeing it made it so much more real. That's one of the things that understanding and can do. Now, of course, therapy isn't only intellectual and cognitive understanding. It's the sensation that went with the understandings. And her sensations of imprisonment and pain were released when she knew that she was in an objectively oppressive position. So there you can see the lines or the swirling forces of your economic and class position, whether you work to make someone else rich in the household or at home. And I ought to say here, her feudal position was an economic position because she was creating use value for her husband, who appropriated that value and decided how to deal with it. If he wanted her to take care of his old parents, okay, or his children from a former marriage, he decided what to do with her labor, not she. Can I ask a question? Sure. Because uh, this, the, I think it's super interesting that you you've brought sort of Marxian language. I guess for any listener that isn't familiar with like the use value and exchange value concept, could you actually explain that briefly? Of course. Use values are things that you create for another person's use. They're not sold on a market. They're not exchanged for money or anything else. So the feudal serfs in medieval age worked to produce crops and they gave over a share to the lord of the manor who decided that share. And the way he usually decided it, and I say he because it was certainly men were in charge, not women, was that he gave the feudal serf family just enough to reproduce a next generation of serfs and sustain themselves in doing physical labor. And just as now in the capitalist system, You have exchange value. People work and are given a wage. With that wage, they can exchange their money for goods and services because we live in a capitalist system of exchange. And people work, an employer hires someone 
And if he wants to stay in business, or she does, or they do, then sure to give that worker less than they can get from the worker's labor, or else they're not a, quote, good, end quote, business person. And so when I say exchange value, I mean work for exchange, for money, or even for goods. But in this case, it's use values because the feudal serf doesn't get a wage, doesn't work in exchange for money, but rather for the ability to keep some of the crop for his, her, or themselves. Whereas someone who works in a capitalist workplace works for a wage, which they can exchange for whatever means possible to stay alive. And that wage depends on what people organize for what they push for, which will sustain which quality of life. Does that make sense? Am I explaining it coherently? I think so. I think my understanding is, so if we thought of a hammer, the use value of the hammer is what it's used for, and the exchange value is uh, what it's exchange, what you'll exchange it for usually in monetary terms. So I never quite thought of, I like this sort of the gender analysis of this, where uh, certain things that say in the traditional sense that women will do you know, this concept of emotional labor or sexual, you know, all those things that there's a sort of use to it, that it's not, um, you know, there's no money flowing back and forth or something like that between husband and wife or boyfriend, girlfriend, but that you're kind of breaking down that, um, what she's being used for essentially from the other person in this totally unequal exchange, um, isn't being, you know, basically she doesn't get a say, she doesn't have control over it. And she's just sort of playing a role, uh, to essentially be used by someone who is uh, in, in this, I mean, it's a metaphor, but you're not actually speaking in total metaphors and talking about the no. feudal, the feudal or serf uh, feudal Lord relationship that you're saying that that's, it's a sort of pass me down that, that in this case was like literally happening. So I just think that's really fascinating. It is. And you know, one of the things that this shows is that Marxian class analysis is not something that just takes place at the workplace. You always have to ask who's working for whom and who's getting the benefit. Mm. And that question can be asked at home and it mm. could be asked in any and every place you want to take it. So mm. in that interpretation of class and Marxism, which is the new Marxism it's called or over or Marxism without guarantees because there's no rigid formula, Mm. um, that Marxism is much more versatile. Mm. And so that this woman who lived in the 20th century could see herself as a feudal serf, powerless against someone who assigned himself the lord of the home manor. And they used to say a man's home is his castle. And in this case, he took it seriously. And I always think it was the name of a chapter I wrote in a book. For every knight in shining armor, there's a castle waiting to be cleaned. Because that idea of the man as the head of the, you know, that his house is his manor is quite was quite uh, routinely practiced. 
And that is changing with the advent of women's liberation, with the capitalist abandonment of American workers taking their jobs to China and so on, the end of the family wage that could support a feudal wife. But to get back to the story I told, I chose this client whose reaction was so dramatic because she really showed the power of the combination of forces described in liberation health, in liberation mental health, the forces of the the economic forces, the cultural forces, and the personal forces of her situation. Isn't, uh, I I had written down it's the institutional, not the economic, by the way. The economic can be part of it. Yes, institutional is what they say. I think economic, but of course, they, in their parlance, it is institutional. Okay, okay. Well, for my case in a minute, I'll use that because I think there's other institutional factors for mine. But no, I thought beautifully done, though. Thanks. Um, Yeah, man. Um, Actually, I want to ask a couple other things. Okay, so the personal, the cultural... Um, were there other, I think you mentioned she was black. I'm wondering if there's other, cause I'm, That's I'm trying a to cultural think these, totally, but I wonder if there were any ways in which it sort of, um, it played into her life in, in ways that sort of touched the personal or the institutional or, and also from, from his side, um, usually in these situations. So on the one hand, I think when you have an individual coming in and saying, you know, I'm being oppressed by this situation, we're trying to help them as the individual and we're not trying to get them to sort of identify with an oppressor or to fix the problems of their, you know, if they have this abusive partner or something like that. But I usually, I'm always trying to zoom out and say like, well, what would need to change in that other person as well? Right? Like if we could, if we could wave a magic wand and change the other persons to not, you know, act like a feudal Lord anymore. Right? Um, were there any, or, or did you, did you not go that direction with this client? Or were you just kind of focusing on helping her kind of reach her own personal point of liberation or did it ever, uh, did it ever come up of like, well, how do we change the guy? Is there any way to change the guy or, or bring him into the room or something like that? No, the, she felt she had to escape. I mean, one of the things yeah. we do as okay. therapists is we listen to our clients. Mm-hmm. And so we don't decide what they need. They yeah. do. Mm-hmm. And what she needed was to have the right to escape, mm-hmm. to feel that she had the right as a human being to be outside of an a feudal arrangement. Right. So it wouldn't, so, it wasn't in the cards. Yeah. There's nothing. No, yeah, they didn't I have come a client for couples like, counseling. Right. Right. Okay. I have one like that right now. She's just, <laughs> yeah. If she could get away with killing the guy, she probably would. Right. And she, her life would probably be better off. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that, but anyway, <laughs> I understand that. I mean, sometimes yeah, you don't, yeah, yeah. if somebody is violent, then you need to escape for your life. Right. Yeah. And this, this one, this is a tangent now, but I mean, she can't, I mean, she can't even, there's, there's like parole and there's stuff on his end. I mean, he's been in and out of the carceral system. Um, and, but if she were to call the cops after something happened, like he, I mean, he has told her, like, if you call the cops, I will kill you. Uh, Mm -hmm. so she actually would probably be dead if she tried to do the most sort of institutionally recommended, uh, approach to the situation. (laughs) So, and and if like for listeners, if that sounds crazy, that's like super common by the way, in domestic violence situations. It sure is. And you can have a restraining order, but people can break right through that restraining order and kill you. Right. And she didn't feel empowered. 
she felt so frightened, as your client seems mm-hmm. to have too, mm-hmm. that this is not a case for negotiation because negotiation requires two willing partners and right. there weren't. Mutuality and, and some sense of insight on the other person's part yes. to have some sense, even just a basic level of understanding Oh, I have a problem. I keep doing this. I have, you know, right. I'm addicted. I'm addicted to hurting the person every single time. I can't control myself. You know, da da da. da. I need, I right. need help. You need that. Yeah. If you don't have that, then it's never going to work. Yeah. No, people who are too far gone can't see themselves as participants as participants in their problems. Right. They are always the victim. Yeah. And the clearest was, you know, well, Trump is a clear example of a terrible exploiting oppressor who is always the victim. The Nazis claimed that they were the victim of the Jews who were raping their children and exploiting them. In order to be a true oppressor, you need to imagine yourself a potential victim against which you are rebelling. That's why the United States, which has never had to defend its borders as an independent country, calls itself the defense department rather than the offense department, which is what it is. You have to see yourself as a victim. I have a a question on the institutional front too, because since we're talking about domestic violence, I mean, I know where I live, I'd imagine New York as like one of the biggest cities in the U S and Santa Barbara, which is like a very small city. We have, um, we're, we're sort of like a nonprofit mecca for a lot of uh, Southern California, but even the resources that the domestic violence shelters and groups have here are, are pretty limited. And I've heard stories of <clears throat> like just moms and women typically. Um, I mean, some have had, I've heard like, like really great stories where they get into a shelter, they get the kids in there. It's enough to, and enough time passes, you know, mom can get like this other job in a different place. And then they, you know, they move and, you know, the, Nobody gets killed or like yeah. maimed or whatever, you know. But like most stories d- typically don't go that direction in my experience. This just our the resourcing around this stuff is so limited. Um, and uh, so I wonder in her case, you know, there's in in my training there, you know, we always talk about safety planning. Okay, so you know, you get home, he does this thing. Do you have a pack of clothes? Do you have the car keys there? Do you have, you know, how do you which which door do you use to get out or whatever? Mm-hmm. Actually, walk through very kind of basic level. How do you stay safe or whatever? But for her situation, if we were to analyze the institutional, like what kinds of resources existed at the time for her to even, you know, let's say she makes the decision, I need to get out, I need to set up a plan, and that she needs she needs some sort of institutional resources to do that because she can't do it on her own, right? Let's say there aren't really, there isn't the sort of either inter- intergenerational wealth or family or social networking mm-hmm. that's just going to say, oh, here's a safety net for you to fall into. Then you'd think, well, maybe the state and the nonprofit sector have some. There's some grants and some funding and some shelters and some counseling and all of this that she can jump into, right? So she can she can make an escape plan and actually have something. You know, do you recall anything that was either helpful or unhelpful in that in that front? Well, when this first became really clear to her that she was a prisoner, she was in the South, and the South. Oh right. It, is not one of our forward areas, yeah. and she didn't know of such resources. She waited till her kids were older and could and were out on their own, mm-hmm. and so that she didn't have to worry about their being vulnerable, and just knew she had to escape and didn't see any resources. And I couldn't point her to some at the time either. 
She did have the wherewithal to get out, though, mm. and she had secreted away enough money planning her escape so she would be all right temporarily oh, Okay. to start again. But those so institutional resources are not are poor in the right. United States everywhere, even well, in a big city like New York City. I would say then that even as a re- this is a factor where uh, you know, and we've talked about this for lack of say universal childcare, uh, wage parity, ac- you know, healthcare, et cetera, et cetera, for women. Uh, that this this plays, I think, a, it plays a reinforcing role. I mean, some would want to say of patriarchy or whatever language yes. you want to use, but I think a lack of a lack of institutional resources for women in these situations. And I don't have the stats. Maybe you know some of the stats. I haven't looked at them in, them in a while. But the number of women that are in this exact kind of situation in the U.S. is like, I don't yes. know if it's in the millions, but it's it's it is really in the it's millions. really so it's really big numbers. Um, and so not having like a pipeline towards safety and um, and this this is a whole other thing. We should and we we've we're trying to get uh, Mariam Kaba, by the way, that she's uh, semi famous at this point. Abolition, you know. Um, you know, police and carceral system reform kind of advocate. We we want to get someone else if she can't. But um, but the other factor of like, you know, because if you if, okay, let's try to get the woman away and rebuild a life or whatever. But very often, even if you do that, if the guy's crazy enough, like he will actually track her down. Oh yes, he'll find whether it's like killing her or stalking her or whatever. Um, that this that's really common. And so there's still this broader question to me that I don't have resolved of like, well, what do we if we're so against the carceral system, how the hell do you deal, deal with that? And that, I know some people would t- want to talk about community policing and um, that basically we just need to raise wages and, you know, basically raise the floor for everybody so that there's less men losing their minds in this way. I don't think that would solve everything, but, you know, it should be on the table. But Well, it's not anyway. only raising the floor, it's giving men alternatives to express feelings outside of violence giving them sure. an alternative to be manly in some other way than being angry would be very helpful. And and so on some level that's education, but there also is within families. I mean, I ran briefly a group where at my clinical site where um, I got it in my head that, you know, if I just get a whole bunch of like young, so I was, I worked with like what are called juvenile sex offenders for um, a while. And, and that's a, that's a legalistic term. It's not like a, I don't think young guys should have that label attached to them forever, but the um, I ran a group with young, like you know, from thirteen to seventeen year old guys for a while, where the, where we talked about these things, gender issues, um, emotions, consent, all these things. And but I realized, like you know, but they're going back into their homes where their dads tend to be kind of patriarchal assholes for the most part, and that it wasn't. It may have planted a seed, but generationally and traditionally and within the family structure, even doing things like that probably isn't going to be hugely effective. So anyway, it also according tangent. to just going along with that relevant tangent, Dorothy Dinnerstein, I think it was in the 70s, wrote a wonderful book on that called The Mermaid and the Minotaur. And what she says is that there probably will not be a way out of this until males and females together participated as equals in rearing children. And that plus Nancy Chatero's work is that what happens to kids in families where they can't identify with a father, as in a lot of homes, the father cuts out, comes in occasionally to impregnate or beat up the mom, but isn't really a participant. 
males identify as the not female, the anti-female, and have this their manhood pegged to being anti-female as persons, which is why so many rap songs say, you know, got that hoe knocked around the floor, you know, very violent anti-female lyrics. Not all rap, obviously. But that these are problems also with the gender division of labor. But they're somewhat compensated in countries where they don't, they're not as gender labeled like Sweden where single mothers get preference in housing and all sorts of supports. We are particularly backward in that whole area, right, although right. that is a tangent. Well, um, I wonder if it's a good segue, because there's some, yes. from my, my case, I wanted to present, there, are, there is some overlap um, with, with what you're saying. So, uh, so again, identifying information has been changed or um, just you know, won't be spoken about in, in enough detail so no one could find out who the person is. Um, so, uh, t- you know, tw- somewhere in the twenties to thirties, uh, Latina female, both parents immigrated from Mexico, uh, fa- I'm, I'm going to do this a little more mechanically than you. I think you did it in a beautifully narrative way. Uh, I'm going to do it a little more like bullet list to, to lay out the Good. case. So, However- so this is the person, both parents immigrated from Mexico. Um, the father had been in and out of prison, uh, kind of beat the mom up a lot, uh, with this, the, the my client, uh, just seeing a lot of it, a lot of exposure to domestic violence. Um, dad also had a lot of drug problems. So kind of this is, and mom ended up working several jobs, uh, multi-generational household where you have, um, when dad was around temporarily, which was not a lot, it'd be like mom, dad, uh, maybe an auntie or uncle. Um, there's like this sort of stereotype, you have like Tio that like lives in this sort of like little thing in the backyard or whatever. Tio means uncle in Spanish uh, and like grandma um, living, living at the house. So like multi-generational, um, but like pretty small house. And, um, and, and, and we're actually, there's like a relative, not like a ton of gang violence, but some, some amount of violence in the neighborhood. Uh, some specifically gang violence. Um, and the client actually came in mainly with, um, I mean, historically there'd been, uh, let's see, I'm thinking how to modify that. So, so long story short, you know, qualified for PTSD of like, what do you got to put on the, on the insurance form? Mm-hmm. Uh, very much applied, um, from like the intrusive symptoms of, of whether it's flashbacks, memories, whatever to, to, um, what do we call avoidance symptoms of avoiding people's places, things, ideas, TV shows, music, things that remind of, of various, uh, things that have caused trauma. So, but, but the main thing was that actually had to do mostly with, uh, uh, the boyfriend who um, was controlling, didn't listen, was very invalidating. Um, and her just trying to kind of figure out how to not feel so stuck and like trapped in the relationship. Um, the relationship wasn't like super abusive or anything, but it just felt constantly like she was overreactive and crazy and um, overly sensitive and stuff. And that he was like always right about things. And um but as I as I got to know her, this this history, her history just seemed really really relevant to me. And so so I'll just also in a maybe a little more bullet listed kind of way, 
the the personal aspects of this again remind that we're doing the liberation health triangle we got their problem in the middle and then you have the personal the cultural and the institutional as these three points and harriet focused mainly on the economic but so on the personal end if you were going to do just a conventional kind of psychotherapy from from a number of kind of modalities you would just look at okay depression symptoms like feels really fatigued all the time doesn't want to get out, out of bed you know living with parents doesn't feel motivated to be able to get a job or go back to school um you know blames herself all the time definitely some ptsd kind of symptoms and uh is in a not you know maybe emotionally abusive relationship not it's not like a dangerous relationship but just doesn't actually feel connected to her partner um, and feels mainly like her family is just very, very like misunderstanding, invalidating. And, and she would say things, uh, you know, I don't know what it's like to not be a white therapist and have like Mexican or Latino or Chicano clients say these things, but sometimes it'd be like, if it's another Mexican uh, therapist, I don't know if it would just be more a quicker, easier report. She'd be like, oh, well, you know, they're super Mexican and so X, Y, and Z. And so, so bleeding into the cultural, it'd be like, oh, well, they're really Mexican. So she just like, she doesn't actually think like mental health is a thing. She doesn't think, you know, she just thinks there's something wrong with, she doesn't believe in therapy or anything. It's just, there's something wrong with me. And so she's like always yelling at me and, you know, telling me there's something wrong with me. But as, so also in, in that, in that world, and also them, both them coming from relatively rural parts of like in traditional parts of Mexico. Um, that's a thing I run into a lot with, with clients where it's, um, and there's these terms, there's like assimilation, there's acculturation. I think there's some other terms, but specifically for like Latino immigrants, this is a really common, um, uh, struggle that, that those who are not immigrants tend, we, you know, those of us, like myself and Harriet, who aren't immigrants, we probably don't, it's harder for us to understand experientially. But if you come from, if you're born in the US, your parents are from a totally different culture where everything's different. And you grow up in, say, the public school system and neighborhoods and everything where there's a sort of, you know, you want to feel identified with your parents and their culture and their language and all these these ways that are different than, say, American white culture. But you're finding that the dominant culture kind of looks down upon your parents' culture. You, you can develop this sort of um, a split, you're torn in two directions that of sort of pride and shame. You want to have a sense of cultural pride. You want to make your parents proud. Your parents want you to have a sense of culture, but also your parents want you to sort of be successful and, and achieve something of yourself in the new culture. Uh, and, and also you're realizing this culture frowns upon your, your, your culture, right? So you start to feel sort of torn in this, like someone call like a liminal space of cultural identity. So it's like, do I, do I resist the dominant culture? Do I like, do I try to act like more, do I, um, do I try to take on more like Mexican or Chicana, like ways of presenting myself or talking or, or whatever, in, in terms of forming my identity, or do I try to assimilate as much as possible so I can also make my parents proud and like su succeed and stuff. So this is like a thing I run into all the time that I just, I just imagine it's probably a really hard position to be in. Um, so, but she, so at a certain point she herself kind of brought up how, especially as we talked about dad and, and what she went through with him and that she, she was like, you know, I think my issue might just be like intergenerational trauma. <laughs> um, and I thought that was, 
you know, well, I, I mean, I complain sometimes about millennials using this language because I'm just like, oh, come on, guys. Like, I know you saw the Instagram meme, but do you even know what that is or whatever? But it was really wise, I think, because um, I I totally agreed. Like, that was, that was a thing where it was, um, she really did feel torn between sort of love of her dad and, and like, and craving for him to actually call or have some sort of contact with her. Uh, and, um, and also being angry at him because of how badly he beat up mom and, and also the economic situation that he put them in because mom had to work way more than she would have if they had two parents working. So him doing all this bad stuff and then, you know, prison and drugs and then leaving the country, um, she's kind of stuck with, um, this mom that had to work all the time and that herself, you know, had some PTSD stuff going on. Um, institutional factors, I'd say, say probably immigration status. It's another thing mm-hmm. that for immigrants, it ends up being a huge thing where those of us that are not undocumented immigrants, we probably yeah. don't think a whole lot about how you have to live a life of secrecy and sort of live in the shadows with everything you're doing. Um, and you distrust every, um, you know, you'll take advantage of whatever's around um, resources wise, but you're extremely distrustful of like, should I even register my name in this in this piece of paper? Should I go to this place? And then especially as when Trump came along, it was like this, mm. just this massive collective fear all the time of like, is ice coming, is ice coming, is ice coming that, that a lot of immigrants had, especially Latino immigrants. But anyway, um, I don't, this isn't like a huge, this is very different than your case, Harriet, in that you, you had a there were conversations where she broke down into tears and she realized this and this and this thing. And, um, this was actually, I'd say a, a, not a failed case for me. Um, I, at a, at a certain point I moved a little bit behavioral with her, I think is a, just a symptom of my own training and being of the newer generation of therapists that are brainwashed into behavioral <laughs> approaches, um, which can be helpful, but I think ultimately aren't most of the time. So, uh, this was actually a shorter lived case, uh, I think she felt, I, I think what she needed was just to continue processing the intergenerational piece. And that's it. Just to understand who she was in this like really complex intergenerational cultural um, trauma ridden uh, situation. Uh, and, and also while being trapped, I mean, literally there was, uh, there was gang violence going on, like really, really bad gang violence uh, at a certain point where, I mean, she didn't want to leave the house. Um and it was understandable. So in terms of trying to motivate her to, you know, get up and do stuff, well, she didn't feel safe in her home, in the neighborhood, um, like really anywhere. So, so this is just a, um, I think if I could have redone it, I would have just focused, I think more on like an almost more like Rogerian or client centered, um, or existential kind of approach of just really just listening and asking a lot of open-ended questions about, her um, her experience in her family, what she meant about the the intergenerational trauma, and not tried to help her solve problems like getting a job or going back to school or anything like that. I think that's I moved into that direction, and I think that ultimately uh, severed our trust actually kind of badly. Um, I moved into problem solver, uh, which was which was unhelpful. So anyway, here's my this is my confession, my like bad therapist confession case, I guess. <laughs> but uh, did you have any any comments on any of the from the liberation health? Uh, model on this one? Yeah, well, this one is very much the social because the fact that she's an immigrant and the fact if she were illegal or people who surrounded her were 
she wouldn't be going into a battered women's shelter where she had to give information. Mm-hmm. And that means that the social services that are available aren't. Right. And the protections, inadequate that they are, aren't there. Mm-hmm. So you're living in a society outside of its few protections, which makes you much more vulnerable but also that the gender stereotyping where the woman is supposed to put up with everything and stay faithful to her man, even though when your man is in jail for a federal offense, you can get an automatic free divorce. Mm. And I I don't think she would have taken that. Well, that was her her father who was, but so the mom, the mom the mother could have wouldn't, done that. Right, 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 right. And stop well, supporting him. Well, but maybe, and this is where I think the institutional and the cultural really blend. And if you're undocumented, there's going to mm. be both, there's going to be, well, if you're undocumented, there's the institutional barriers. But then culturally, I think there develops a general distrust. And also, I'd say, like, in all this, this sort of hot, hot use of the term mutual aid, I mean, I actually think, like, in a much more organic and, and required way, immigrant communities thrive off of mutual aid in that, okay, if we're not, if we can't rely on the government or X or Y or Z or such and such nonprofit, we have to rely on each other. And so, um, and so you're, you know, you become a lot more interreliant and just within those who are like also monolingual Spanish speakers or those who seem like culturally trustworthy to you. Something else I just as a Marxian thinks, I didn't really think of this before, but this, this concept of the reserve army of labor a reserve, uh, the surplus, army of labor, sometimes it's called, uh, where, uh, there's, there's this theory. I don't know. I don't know if Marx actually talked about this. I never got that far through capital. Um, maybe you could speak on this area, but there's this idea that under capitalism, since cheap labor is a requirement for the like mass overproduction of commodities and for capital accumulation, uh, you know, if in our current form of capitalism, we can't have slavery on paper, but if you have an underclass, either from they've been incarcerated, if there's an over-policed, over-criminalized kind of population and, you know, uh, black people, people of color, this BIPOC is like the latest acronym, do tend to fall in, under this. Although there's, you know, there's plenty of white people in prison and with, you know, legal, legally questionable uh, histories at this point, but nothing in comparison to, say, black Americans. Uh, but for the undocumented immigrant community as well, capitalism really needs this quote unquote illegal immigration uh, like input into the nation state to exploit. And so both, both the parents from this family were subject to that reserve army of cheap labor from, from a Marxian perspective and that the debt for the jobs that he did have, they were just, you know, whatever job he could get either in the, um, in the fields uh, somewhere in California or uh, just, just like really low wage kind of menial blue collar work. Same with mom, like cleaning other people's houses, like mm-hmm. rich people, rich people's houses or, um, you know, service industry jobs, like or picking you know, crops or something like that. Just some, some, all this stuff that like no middle-class person is ever going to ever going to do. Um, so, so there, there's another factor for her that of just economics that, yeah. that kept her in her place as well. And, and the parents from being able to do much to change their own situation, which yeah. I think, just to add, this is, these are the kinds of things where sometimes I feel bad in that, you know, you get someone that's like this, she's like nearly 30 years old and that she, her sort of prospects, you know, if she were to, okay, if she goes to 
city college and does this, this, and this. And then if she goes into a trade, you know, like nursing or something like that, she probably is going to fare a lot better. Like she's able to do these things, you know, if she could get through the training, she would. Well, and if she could get out of her, you know, the, all this trauma, all this stuff, she's sort of saturated from the intergenerational piece is just, we couldn't get over that. And I wasn't, I wasn't successful at helping her get over it. There's but, another um, factor though. I think we have to consider uh-huh. in terms of the social, because I have a client who, um, really is very much influenced by that. And that's Catholicism instructs women to, to stay loyal to men, no matter how they're treated. And the women, um, I had a client, a male client whose mother stayed in a really abusive relationship Mm-hmm. The father was in jail for trying to murder his mistress when she tried to leave, but the mother stayed there ready for him when he came out of jail because she got the message from the Catholic Church mm-hmm. that that was her job. Mm-hmm. He survived because a neighbor who was actually his biological father, unknown to the other people there, uh, knew that and took care of him and helped him through school and so on. But we can't, and the evangelical church is much more powerful in the Hispanic community. And their prescription that women must stay in a marriage, no matter how abusive, that it is their job to take care of hearth and home in their parlance and be there no matter what is another very powerful force shaping women's victimization as they endure in abusive relationships totally and i think that yeah blending into both the institutional and the cultural that's that that can be a really big thing although i i would say from my experience um and latino is such a broad i mean it encompasses like tons of like nationalities and Mm -hmm. it's it's a really complicated it's almost not totally meaningless but it's like not there's a lot of meaning packed into it that probably yes. doesn't really apply to imprecise. people we're talking about. Yeah. It's very yeah, that's a great way to put it. It's very imprecise. But something that I understand, especially for Mexican and indi- the Mexican indigenous sort of um for, for a lot of immigrants, like where I live, for example, there's all kinds of like Mexican Catholic symbolism in certain neighborhoods that what I, I was kind of educated to understand that much of this is actually indigenous Mexican um I mean, whether it's like as, I mean, mm-hmm. there's, there's tons and tons of indigenous languages that are not Spanish um, mm-hmm. that like, even so when people talk about the Aztecs, for example, they technically drive from people called the Mexica. Um, and, but there is tons and tons and tons of other, other indigenous groups all over what we call Mexico today. And that there's a lot of indigenous mythology and stories and, and everything that's carried through Mexican Catholicism in particular that has, um, so it's almost like a subversive reappropriation of Catholicism from my understanding. Mm-hmm. So in some cases, there very much are these, uh, what you and me would consider like super unhelpful, like patriarchal mm-hmm. norms and everything. But, but I just want to add almost as a dialectical side of it, that there, there is, um, there's a lot of, I think like cultural survival narratives and indigenous um, resistance that actually lives in that same in that same framework sometimes. So I think well, I in think terms of the, the doom of marriage, 
that women should remain loyal and faithful. I don't know how those indigenous cultures can contradict, and I sure hope they do. Sure. And I don't know enough about any, you know, and like, you know, one can talk about one indigenous tribe or something and then and then think they know everything about every other tribe. And I just don't know enough about any anything about like indigenous Mexican cultures to like speak on it competently. But but in any case, <clears throat> yeah, this was a situation where if I could go back, if we were going to talk treatment planning, it would just be, I think, trying to solve problems in the in the material and practical far less and just letting the person process and sort of um, um, unfurl, just sort of to develop their identity and a sense of themselves a little bit better, which you would think is the point of therapy. But having been brainwashed by DBT and stuff, sometimes I, I fuck up and don't do that. Um, so for some clients, like all, I, I feel like I just listen for an hour and like I don't well, really do anything Well, sometimes people else. just need to be heard in order to be recognized as a human being. Yeah, and that's this was a case where I mean I I sort of like put some some clients like they want a really active because I I can be yes. a very active therapist where I'm like do this do that and I'm giving them homework and crap. Um, this was one where I think I pushed too hard, um, and and she deserved to just be able to figure out who the hell she was and and what was going on. So, um, in any case, that's there's a liberation health stuff applied to that. Um, it's a hugely important methodology because our field is in denial of the social and economic institutional cultural influences that shape personal decisions yeah oh and i would say with this with this one and like lots of others i think and i've I've tried this before it doesn't always work especially if someone's super depressed but kind of referring them to some sort of cultural group where they might find where they might develop a collective sense of identity around around something in in a cultural way, a women's group, a you know like yeah. Latino like active you know Chicano like Rasa type um, group or something like that. Like sometimes those kinds of things um, could just be super helpful. And once someone gets connected to that, and when they weren't previously, now there's like this shared uh, sense of experience, and that can just be. Like in and of itself, sometimes if you can get someone to go to something like that, it's like referring to a twelve-step group. Sometimes they're like, "I don't even want to do therapy anymore. I got my my people in my twelve-step group." You know? And yeah. So that's cool when that happens. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, Alrighty. I think both of us mm-hmm. can show the constant mutual shaping of all of these forces that help us be who we are, and yeah. that need to be looked at in their interaction make us who we are and give us some choices as we understand what's going on. We can see yeah. how we might be able to function within it in a way we couldn't. And that's a wonderful gift of therapy. Yeah. 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 Well, well, hopefully this is our first, we, we want to try to do this maybe once a month or so, or whenever, you know, not, not every episode, obviously, but case conceptualizations. Um, and there's different ways we could do it as well. I mean, I was also thinking of using myself for when I was a teenager. I was like the most troubled little fucking brat ever. <laughs> and using this model on myself could be really fun. Yes. Um, but even the idea of like having a you know one of our patrons or just a listener or something, if they wanted to, like, you know, we can talk offline if, it, if you're okay with doing that. I think it could be kind of fun um, having people have themselves be a case conceptualization and problem solving things. But, um, but, you know, cause we are therapists, you know, we talk, we go off on all these political topics all the time, which is kind of the point of the podcast, but we are therapists and we do think therapy is helpful. And, um, 
yeah, and we'd we'd love to keep doing this kind of thing more. So we, we would love feedback as well if people we like, th- like this episode and if they want to hear more of this kind of thing. And yeah, because so you asked for it. You asked for it. We want to see. Is this what you wanted? Yeah, if yeah, not, yeah. Tell us. Exactly. Yeah. It's important. All right. Well, uh, All right. Thank thanks you. everybody for listening and <laughs> hopefully you got something out of this one. So Yes. And thank you, especially for our Patreon supporters, but thank you to everyone. Yeah. And remember, tell people about the podcast so we can reach people, which is the whole point. Oh, if you, if you want it, you'll see it in the show notes, but if you want to contact us, it's, uh, it's not just in your head at gmail.com. If you want to become a patron, uh, patreon.com slash it's not just in your head. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolff and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. Capitalism Hits Home is a sort of broader over overhead view. It explores the way that capitalism shapes our personal lives, our psyches, our relationships, our families, and it looks particularly at the sea change in American personal life as all Americans but the top 10 or 20% of Americans have our security and our chance for a future become as precarious as it always was for minorities and families headed by women. It's not just in your head and capitalism hits home are definitely complimentary. And if listeners would like to check out Capitalism Hits Home, Harriet, where should they go to find it? Either on YouTube or Democracy at Work or on my own website, harrietfraud.com.